This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. Welcome to um, Whitworth University's History Heritage Month series. Um, February is African American History Month, which is recognized across the United States. Just a little bit about the background of African American History Month. It was in 1926 that Dr. Carter G. Woodson, uh, an African American historian, the second African American to earn a PhD at Harvard University after W.E.B. Du Bois, was concerned that historiography uh, as um, expressed and taught in U.S. and world history, K through graduate studies, uh, depicted African people and African Americans in such a way that sent the message that presented this group of people as uncivilized or savage or um, without um, any history that was worthy of mention. And so he made it his life work uh, to uh, teach and correct, if you will, U.S. history um, and to um, educate, if you will, children, men and women about the contributions, the gifts, the courage, uh, the brilliance, resiliency of people of African descent in general and African Americans in particular, as well as the shortcomings. It is, from time to time, um, I'm part of conversations where persons raise the question, given that we've come so far in educational reform in our nation, given that we've come so far with race relations, is there a need for African American history or other racially ethnic history months? Well, I teach African-American history here at Whitworth, and to this day, by the second or third week of the class, my beautiful and brilliant and bright students ask this question. They say, Dr. Burnley, how come we've never had this history before? So when that question becomes a question I no longer hear, because at that point, I think we no longer need Black History Month in this nation. I'm grateful to be at a university that values um, the call of Christ to model and be an inclusive community, one who celebrates the diversity of God's creation, one who is committed to achieving equitable outcomes for all God's people, and one who wants to, is committed to modeling what it means to be inclusive. So thank you for being here tonight. Um, I am thrilled, um, not only by your presence, but by our, our guest, uh, Dr. Dwight Hopkins. I'm going to introduce him um, in just a second. There's a couple of housekeeping things I want to mention. Um, the Core 250, if you have not signed up, 150, I'm sorry, uh, there are sign-up sheets out front. If you want credit, be sure to sign those. 
those uh, forms out there. And is Hannah here? Hannah Tweet. Hannah's in the back. My class, uh, uh, History 240. Okay, there she is in the back. Be sure you uh, uh, give Hannah your name, and you'll get the um, credit that I promised you for showing up here tonight. Wow, you all are so beautiful. It's great to be here this evening. Dr. Dwight N. Hopkins is a constructive theologian working in the areas of contemporary models of theology, various forms of liberation theologies, especially black and other third world manifestations, and east-west cross-cultural comparisons. Professor Hopkins is interested in multidisciplinary approaches to the academic study of religious thought, especially cultural, political, economic, and interpretive methods. He is an ordained American Baptist minister. Before teaching, he was an associate minister at Bethany Baptist Church in New York. He has the following degrees. BA, a BA from Harvard University, a Master's of Divinity, a Master's of Philosophy, and a, a Doctor of Philosophy from Union Theological Seminary and a second PhD from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He has authored several books and uh, articles. I'll name just a few of his books. Um, Shoes That Fit Our Feet, colon, Sources of a Constructive Black Theology, Being Human, colon, Race, Culture, and Religion. His latest works are Teaching Global Theologies, of the Cambridge Companion uh, to Black Theology and Walk Together Children, colon, Black and Womanist Theologies. Professor Hopkins has initiated and managed a 14-country network to think about the practices of building healthy communities and healthy individuals in communities with representatives from Hawaii, Fiji, Australia, Japan, India, England, Ghana, Zimbabwe, Botswana, South Africa, Cuba, Jamaica, Brazil, and the United States. The network learned about and is learning about neighbors by neighbors, learning about neighbors by neighbors sharing their faiths and culture. Dr. Hopkins is a professor of theology at the University of Chicago Divinity School and term professor extraordinarius at the University of South Africa, Pretoria, in the Department of Philosophy, Practical, and Systematic Theology. All of this means, of course, he has some serious uh, frequent flyer miles. Uh, um, yeah, constant upgrades. Um, I met Dr. Um, Hopkins, I call him Dwight, in Zimbabwe. Uh, my wife, who is here, where are you, Naomi? We were at the World Council of Churches just two days after our wedding of, of attending the World Co Council of Churches uh, meeting. And we met Dwight and his wife, and then we also joined them in South Africa where we were honeymooning. Um, and then last year, we've been out of touch for a while, and then last year I was doing some consulting work at the University of Chicago, and we met again. And boy, what a, what a blessing it was to reconnect. So I'm excited for Whitworth this evening. Um, to, uh, to welcome and hear from this extraordinary man of God, uh, this servant. Um, he's going to speak to us for maybe uh, 45 minutes or so, but we're going to have Q&A because he, he's demonstrated today he's really into engaging conversation and dialogue. So there'll be opportunity for, for, for you to respond 
ask questions and share. So please join me this evening in uh, offering a Whitworth welcome to Dr. Dwight Hopkins. Good evening. It is so good to, is this thing on? Yeah, there we go. There's my preacher voice. It's so good to, to be here in this evening in this space and time with you all. Some faces I remember from them having me speak four sessions already today, <clears throat> which is fine. That's what we're here for. Um, I'd like to thank uh, President Taylor and Provost Simon for, I'm sure they were the men and women behind the green curtain. There's always someone who has signs off on these things, and I'm always humbled when somebody lets me loose on their campus to talk, especially amongst their students. So to the president and the provost, thank you so much. And of course, to my friend, Dr. Reverend Dr. Larry Burnley and Mrs. Uh, it's good to see you again. He talked, he actually talked about you. I was like, man, come on, she'll be there now. You just keep, you just keep talking with your wife all day like this. So he's really in love, so I shouldn't say that. In my church tradition, everything is public, so be careful what you say. <laughs> I want to talk to you tonight on the topic, what is a Christian black theology of liberation? And I'm actually going to read this, and I'll hopefully uh, uh, you'll be able to understand it. I tried to make it as clear as possible, and we'll have some time for Q&A. I may not go through the whole thing, but... Um, I just wanted to prepare remarks uh, so you can put them down. I know students probably have to sign in and write something, right? Okay, so I'll try to help you all out, get the little A plus, come on. Um, okay, to understand the phrase black theology of liberation or black liberation theology, and I'll often be using BLT for black liberation theology. Um, oh, that's, I didn't mean it that way, but black, BLT, black liberation theology. To understand these phrases, it is helpful to define each of the three terms in the phrase. The word theology in the phrase means that black theology of liberation is rooted in the Christian tradition. That's what the theology part, rooted in the Christian tradition. That is to say, Christianity begins with the historical Jesus through the disciples of the early church and its eventual spread throughout church tradition of the last 2,000 years. The word liberation in black theology liberation denotes a belief that the framework, ministry, and orientation of Jesus is liberation. So theology speaks to church tradition, liberation speaks to Jesus. And the word black in black liberation theology answers the question of how do theology and liberation manifest in African American culture? That's it. I can end the lecture now. That's what it's all about. Thus, black liberation theology is focused on three themes. It is rooted in the Christian tradition, wedded to the gospel of Jesus Christ of liberation, and revealed in black culture. Therefore, at its basic root, black theology of liberation is the joy, the celebration, and the self-confidence of knowing that each person is personally created to be full human beings, and at the same time, the collective black group is created to have its freedom, both ends. Each individual created in God's image means each person goes forth to help the community to achieve 
freedom and healing. In a word, the imago dei leads to the missio dei. So for all the, the, the theology majors, this is the in-house. We know we got our own. What are y'all? Come Anybody major in theology? All right. You know what imago dei, missio dei? What's that? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Give that, give that sister A. Yeah, yeah, there we go. It means that the image being created, if we are creating the image of God, individually and personally, with group implications, we are called to be missions of God word out. Imago Dei leads to the Missio Dei. Black theology liberation is a way of practicing faith, thinking about faith, and celebrating faith that understands theology in the following way. First, the purpose of theology is to figure out if we are all being faithful to what God has called us to do, believe, think, and say. So, first of all, the theology makes us accountable to the God, to, to, to God's word. Second, all theologies arise out of the materiality of context. Third, the role of theology is to reflect on how communities of faith interact. And fourth, theology is a discipline and a way of life that matters. That is to say, in theology, something is at stake. And fifth and finally, theology helps us to build new individuals and new communities. In a word, theology helps us to change the world. With that brief introduction, this conversation this evening follows three broad outlines. So if you're taking notes for your, what you got to do? Uh, here's the whole lecture here, okay? We are trying to understand the state of black theology by initially looking at its original context. That's the why question. So it's three parts to the conversation. Why, what, and where. First, we look at why did black theology liberation begin at the time and place that it began? That's the why section. The second section we'll talk about is what. What makes up the content and methodology of black theology liberation? And then we finish the conversation this evening with the where question. We finish with an examination of where are some of the important directions of black liberation theology today. So we're going to talk about the why and the what and say, well, okay, what about the where? Where is it today? Okay? You got that in your little note taken? Okay. Anybody speak any different languages around here? Como estas? Enchanté? Ni hao. Okay. What'd you say? What? Oh, she's like, what up? Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have an Ebonic speaker here. All right. <laughs> Which is actually one of my, I teach a class on Ebonic, on black English, actually. Why? First part of the conversation. Why? Black theology's historical context. Let's begin with the historical context out of which contemporary black liberation theology, or BLT, arose. There are domestic and international reasons why black theology began in the time and period and place of the 1960s. And black theology is dealing with questions and issues that arise from society. Here, black theology deals with church and society. And from a strict theological perspective, BLT saw itself responding to how Jesus was already involved in the liberation and healing of a people. Already involved. 
In this sense, Jesus' work was ahead of black theology and Christian churches. And as a result, black theology and, uh, and our churches had to catch up with the incarnation of the Holy Spirit among the people. Because Jesus was already showing compassion for poor people, churches and black theology needed to be involved in these communities of the people. Black liberation theology did not fall from the sky from the head of an individual, nor was it created in itself, for itself, to perpetuate itself by itself. BLT did not center on the trauma of an individual person, and it did not begin separated from the material reality of African American everyday people. And finally, BLT did not develop independent from churches and other institutions of accountability. One of the most important things about BLT is that it did not start first in graduate school. The hallmark contribution of BLT is that Jesus Christ is for the liberation of the poor, the oppressed, working class people, and the wounded. Therefore, black theology is a theology of liberation for the poor, the oppressed, working class people, and the wounded. At the same time, black liberation theology calls for a universal community of all people. If Christian faith and the historical Jesus point to having compassion for the least, the lost, and the left out, then this is a universal message for all people who want a healthy community on earth. It is also a vocation for those with disproportionate privileges to share in the building up of community that is healthy, healed, and whole. This is, what question is this? So y'all should take notes down. No, not doctor, apparently. This is a question for the students, it's the why question. All right, why did it arise? Two parts to it, domestic factors and international factors. The first reason BLT began is the domestic factors, specifically the civil rights movement, the Black Power Movement, and Joseph Washington's book called Black Religion. So there are three parts to the domestic. The Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, and Joseph Washington's book called Black Religion. We all know that the 1955 to late 1960s Civil Rights Movement was led by black churches and headed by a black Baptist pastor, preacher, and PhD, Martin Luther King Jr. And we all know the story that on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks, sat down because she was tired. You know, segregation, there was segregated seating at that time, and so we pretty much know the understanding of what happened to Rosa Parks. Some of the women say Rosa Parks sat down so King could stand up. Um, so basically, that was one of the major incentives on the domestic side for the rise of black theology, the civil rights movement. What black theology liberation takes from the fa domestic factor of the civil rights movement is that King and his lieutenants they redefined what it meant to be church. Church meant putting on your bib overhauls, walking out of your church, and getting arrested. It meant breaking laws. It meaning sacrifice one's body. One of the phrases in his sermons, if you look at the archives on the sermons that he gave, he has this theme of bearing the cross. So it, black theology absorbed this redefinition of what it meant to be church from the civil rights movement. Some, in that case, I'm from Virginia, so I was born in segregation. I was born in St. Philip's Colored Hospital on Broad Street, downtown Richmond. And sometimes there were days for white people to shop downtown. There were days for us to shop downtown. So that's another story. Um, 
But what he said, what he said, well, look, you know, church has to be, Jesus is for the poor and the oppressed, and the church has to go out and be with those people, even if it meant breaking first local laws, and then eventually federal laws. So again, you can see how, you will see how black theology says, oh, okay, I'm learning for King on the redefinition of church. And also King began to radically, for the last two years of his life, redefine black religion, but Christianity in America, by emphasizing the poor. He has a phrase that said, if I must die for the poor, I'm going that way. And there's no accident that the last two campaigns of King were what? Supporting black working class in Memphis, Tennessee, that's why he was there, and having a poor people's campaign. That's what he died for, working class people at the end, and poor. So as far as redefining the church, black theology took that from the civil rights movement. As far as radically emphasizing a, a type of gospel message for the poor and the working class, uh, he, they took that from, black, from civil rights movements. The whole point about to witness is to really sacrifice even to death, they took that from King as well. And there are other things. We're just trying to show some examples of how this first domestic fact of the civil rights movement gave some sources to, that black theology took. Now, on, on June 16, 1966, in Greenwood, Mississippi, Stokely Carmichael, who was head of the youth wing of the civil rights movement, uh, cried out this new slogan called Black Power. That's the day, the place, the time, the person, and the organization. Black power starts there. And the black power shout on the part of Carmichael begins the second domestic factor which black theology learned from. That is the black power movement. The, civil, the, black power, the thrust of the black power movement was this. These young people have been organizing in Delta, Mississippi, in the rural Mississippi since 1964 with poor black peasants. And power, initially, before the black petty bourgeois workers like me, coastal workers took over the definition. Actual original definition was that black power was for black peasants. They should own their land in the Delta. They should, hire their, they should have their own black politicians. They should own their own wealth. That, go back, not just Wikipedia, go back to the archives and look at the really, the regular, that's the original definition of black power. Then those of us who are educated, we began to talk about other types of things, right? Um, so that was the initial content of black power, and who said it, what was, when it was said, where it was said, which organization, the content. Um, now, <clears throat> the, so black liberation theology began to learn those aspects from this black power movement. The other thing that black theology took from the black power movement was the, the emphasis on affirming black identity. Affirming black identity, including extending back to the African roots. So this was a big, big king, did not talk much about this. So they took this, they took this identity self-affirmation as a very important gift from the black power movement. Um, so these are some of the things that arose from the domestic factors. The civil rights movement, the black power movement. Okay, we're gonna get to how black theology pulls this all together, right? But we're trying to see what is it that, the third domestic factor that went into black theology, the original founding of black theology of liberation um, was Joseph Washington's book called Black Religion. Joseph Washington, and it was published in 1964. Joseph Washington was African American. He had a PhD in uh, social ethics from Boston University. And that, I mean, that's a huge, you know, a, 19, a black person getting a PhD like in 1962 or 61, that's huge. I think there's some gray hairs and some bald heads in here. We were, we, we were alive. 
So you all just take a little, you know, what's it, talk to the hand, what is that, I mean, what's so important about that? No, that was huge to say a black person got a PhD from Boston University in social ethics in the six, early 60s. And so he published, and he was also ordained. So he knew the black church from his own being. He wasn't an outsider. It was inside. Are you any anthropologists in here? Majors? Okay, everybody's making money finance. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> it's a whole new generation, President. We were trying to deal with humanities and full of glory of God. <laughs> it's like, no, take care of your family, man. You got to take care of the family. <laughs> but um, it was an insider's view, this book. And he talked about the black worship, and he talked about church, and he talked about the eating, and he talked about jokes about black preachers. So it wasn't like an, I mean, you know when you read this book, this guy knows the black church. What does he say in there? Now, this third source, black religion on the part of Joseph Washington's book, is a negative incentive for the rise of black theology. So, you know, spoiler alert, the end of the book says there is no, black church has no theology. That's the conclusion of the whole book. So you can imagine that, people are a little upset about that, right? <laughs> they said, he says in that book, the true theology is only the white church in America. This is a black guy, you know. Uh, he said, this is only, only the white church has the true theology in America. Why? Because the white church in America goes back to the white church tradition in Europe. Isn't that special? And um, one, so by, on, by, on the criterion of tradition. And so this is his definition of whether you have church has not theology or not. Whether the church goes, so his, the white church in America goes back to the Christian tradition in Europe, that's one criterion. The other criterion why only the white church has theology is because the, only the white church has faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, the object of your faith. Now he says in the book that the black church has a lot of faith, but it's in social protest. And he says anybody can have faith in social protest, but faith has to be very specific to the risen Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. So that was the second, second criteria. Um, and therefore, if a, white, if a church has a direct tradition back to Jesus, through Europe, back to Jesus, I have some problems with it, as you can ask in Q&A, but I'm, this is him talking. And one, and also if a church has a faith in Jesus Christ, not just faith in protest and identity politics, or Black Lives Matter, he would say today, not Hopkins, him saying that. Um, then it has the two criteria that allows it, which is the third point, allows a church to be self-critical. If you're not linked to a tradition, there's no basis to judge your current work, right? You can't do self-critique outside of a tradition. That's what he's saying. So you have these three. So what do you have? He would say, oh, the black church has black religion, which is social protest, struggle for the poor and the oppressed, equality and human rights. Oh, that's very good. It just, it just ain't Christian theology, you know? Uh, that's just, it's just not that. So you can imagine from a, this third domestic factor for the rise of black theology, Joseph Washington's book, you can see he's a, it's a frontal attack on the black church itself. Not just black theology as a discipline in the University of Chicago or wherever, but on the very nature of the black church itself. So civil rights movement, black power movement, Joseph Washington's book are three of the major domestic factors in the why question. Now, in terms of global factor on the why question, we see that World War II and um, the, the and black soldiers' involvement in World War II was a major part of the global factor 
that uh, produced the conditions why black theology arose. And here we're specifically talking about those black soldiers who fought against Hitler, and also from their perspective, they fought against communism in the Korean War. Uh, they basically said, look, you know, we've gone and died or lost limbs or become back not fully whole. We fought against, we're, everybody, well, some folk remember World War II. We may not have been alive, but we know maybe our parents and things like that. That was the great war for democracy, right? It was fascism was a racist, it was a racial movement, right? The Aryan race, it was, that, that was based on, okay? And then some would say the, the, the war against communism, uh, particularly the Korean War, I mean, this is your view politically, was, was, against, was for human rights and democracy. So you've got these black soldiers who were fighting way over there for, against racial superiority and race, white supremacy, and they got them over there fighting for democracy, human rights, civil rights, equality. Okay, when they came back home, because we want some of that here, okay? We want some of that right here. And uh, that was a big, that global factor really, in that time and place in American history, provide the condition that eventually impacted black pastors and black theology. But you can see that connection, right? Well, hey, we've experienced this over here, and you've sent us here. We're dying here. In fact, they fought to desegregate the army so they could die fighting against fascism. Uh, uh, what is it, FDR's executive 8803 uh, that desegregated the military around whenever, the 1935, 1936, something like that. Historians, look at the historians here. So they're fighting to integrate, to die to go support and defend America against fascism and for democracy, for civil rights, for non-racial, for racial parity. So if you're gonna do that, then you come back home, well, you might wanna do that at home too, you know? Uh, so that you can see how that was a factor. Um, uh, hopefully you can see that on the, on the global, as a global factor, World War II and the Korean War was a big impact. Another impact on the global factor was the domino effect of decolonization. There's a long history of African Americans, including certain black churches that have supported African independence since 1938 when Italy tried to invade Ethiopia. But even more so, back up to the, uh, this period of the 40s, the 50s, and early 60s, people were aware, you know, King, Dr. King himself went to the uh, Independence Square in India, wasn't he there? And Malcolm X went to like Ghana. So, they were aware of the independence struggles on the continent. You know, 57 was Ghana, I think 59 was Nigeria, 47 was India. And then, you know, 90 miles south of the United States, there's a bunch of guerrillas with, with cigars coming out of Sierra Maestro <laughs> Mountains. And anybody believe communists or not, but that was for many people back in the day. This was an example in the Americas, literally not just the backyard, but in the, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in the house, 90 miles away, that they broke away and depended and a lot of people don't realize that uh, if not half, if not majority, at least half of Cuba, even today, is African. It's the central to the East Coast. Well, we mainly see folks and people in Miami. So uh, what are we saying? We're saying that this whole movement toward decolonization and independence, and what were they talking about? That people of color need to fight for human rights, civil rights, liberation. Of course, there were some who were Marxists and some Leninists, but the, the overall movements were for independence and freedom. And so folk on this side are hearing all of this, right? A lot of people who lived during that period, it was not unusual to hear about liberation struggles in the media. 
with uh, Walter Cronkite and Chet Green. We only had three stations, ABC, CBS, NBS, NBC. And what was it, around 11.30? Where are the gray hairs in here? Was it 11.30, the television went off, and then it they went <laughs> 30, okay? And then what was it started at 6 in the morning? Started back. No social media. Boo. <laughs> no Instagram. <laughs> and it used to take us 10 days for the mail would come to our house. So stop emailing me every five seconds, students. <laughs> That's why I got 300 emails, Dr. Burley. Oh, not here, of course. I'm talking University of Chicago <laughs> students. So this global factor of the decolonization movement was uh, made a big impact on the thinking of the black movement, black churches uh, during this period of the 50s um, and 60s. Now, I didn't even mention Mao Zedong in 1949 and his Red Guards, and they brought in, a, in a, you know, they broke away and did what they wanted to do. There's some other global factors too. Um, you may not remember the Marshall Plan, which the U.S. government provided economic redevelopment for Europe after the war, after World War II, the Marshall Plan. And um, what that did was by investment, you know, an econ a GDP can grow from exports externally and domestically, citizens' consumption and infrastructure. Those are three major pillars for growth in GDP. So the Marshall Plan is huge investment, right? So the local GDP in America began to go up. And we get this phrase of a sense of, 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 of economic expectation on the part of Americans during this period with the Marshall Plan. And you get this phrase of parents expecting their children to do better than the parents. Now, I don't know if y'all feel that way, but I heard my daughters last week, hey, you ain't got no money. You go, hey, you talk to that hand now. You go up, get your own. No, they're going to do, I'll support them. I'll support them. <laughs> but that sense that we have an economic unboundedness that's not limited and that our children and grandchildren will do better. Part of that comes from that respect to the Marshall Plan. So too, black folks also have this expectation of being prosperous and expecting things to rise, you know? All, the, if the boat goes up, we all go up. If the boat goes down, we all go down. Okay, that's the why question. What's the next question? Not Dr. Burnley. What's the next question? What question? Okay. The what question? What is the theological content and method? That's the two aspects of the what question. The contemporary black theology liberation began on July 31st, 1966, when 48 black pastors and, and black lay leaders published a full-page ad in the New York Times. And the title of the ad was called Black Power. What they were trying to do is to respond to the call for black theology, excuse me, the call for black power that took place June 16th, 1966. Remember, youth wing Stokely Carmichael shouted that. So now, July, so what, how does the church respond to this new development in America? Anybody here, the gray hairs and the bald heads, if we were alive, that was a huge, talk about polarization. That was like Obama, Osama bin Laden, and that was ISIS. I mean, it was just, you, you now we can talk about black power and the Malcolm X. I remember when I was a little shorty back in the 60s, I had the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I would ride the bus, and I'd put a brown paper bag on the outside of the cover so people wouldn't see I was reading Malcolm X's autobiography. 
So it was, uh, you know, you, you can talk about it now, but let's, you know, just like everybody says, I was at the march on Washington. Y'all weren't at the march on Washington. <laughs> so I was, always, I was always supporting black progress. Not, er not here. I mean, generally in America. So what we're saying is that there was such a volatile issue that churches, if you're a pastor of a church and the congregation who are the sheep and you're the shepherd, the sheep are eating all kinds of things, right? The, pastor, the, the shepherd has to discern what's good to eat and what's bad to eat. And a lot of people were either eating or running away from black power. So how do I respond as a pastor? So these 48 pastors, 47 men and one woman, responded by writing a black statement. was called Black Power, July 31st, 1966, in the New York Times. Okay? And let me tell you who these, these are all African Americans. The woman was Anna Hedgeman. Um, but let me just tell you who were these 48 signatories, signatories to this thing. There was one African Methodist Episcopal bishop. There were four African Methodist Episcopal clergy, local clergy. There were two clergy from two state national council of churches. There was one Episcopal bishop. There were five Episcopal clergy of local churches, one congregational clergy, three United Church of Christ clergy, two Christian Methodist Episcopal clergy, one officer from the National Baptist Convention of America, 10 local Baptist clergy, seven Presbyterian clergy, three Methodist church bishops, one Methodist church clergy, two clergy from the National Council of Churches, three independent clergy, one bishop from the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, and one local AMEZ clergy. So you can see this was not just, you know, black people supporting, you know, Che Guevara or something, and Fidel Castro. This is a pretty impressive list. Um, even if you don't know what black religion is in America, this is a huge, this is a lot of people. That's all we're saying. Okay. These were the people who started black theology of liberation right here. These are the people who did it. Okay. Um, in that statement, there were four subheadings. Uh, the first section of that statement on July 31st, 1966, the New York Times, section one was called, To the Leaders of America, Power and Freedom. Section two in that publication, to white church men, power and love. So power, but love. Section three title, to Negro citizens, power and justice. And section four, the last section, the title is, to the mass media, power and truth. These 48 black Christian leaders wrote about, what else did they write about? This might sound familiar. They wrote about jobs, educational systems, equal opportunity, income disparity, racial income disparities, de facto segregation, the fact that only a small group of middle class Negroes had made progress in America, sounds familiar, the need to rebuild urban areas, and the need for America to stop its wars of destruction abroad. This is 1966. How many years is that? 50 years ago? I wasn't a math major. I was in philosophy. What was, what was that? Is that? What is that? Is that 60? Thank you. The Episcopal bishop is Lutheran. Oh, sorry. thought I was at the EDS in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> Lutheran bishop over there. She's clarifying it. Okay. Um, you know, this is 60 years ago. It's amazing. Maybe it's not amazing to you, but it's amazing that um, some of these issues were pointed out so far back in our history. Um, but what it does, the tone of the thing, of that phrase, is they keep referring to America, our beloved country. So it also indicates where they were coming from, you know, that their perspective. Belo America, our beloved, our beloved homeland, 
our beloved country. Um, now, what happens is in March of 1969, James H. Cohn publishes the first book on black theology liberation. It's called Black Theology and Black Power. But what we have is from June, July 31st, 1966, the statement until March of 1969, what's happening? These pastors outside the academy are developing black liberation theology. There are archival indications like Time Magazine. I guess you can get that on Wikipedia or something, but we'll have to go back to the microfiche. Anybody know what a microfiche is? <laughs> and I had to go to the microfiche. Oh, God, they're going to kick me out of here. I ripped their microfiche. Um, and it would say, they had the, at a conference of these black pastors, they talked about black, a black theology liberation. It's just that Cohn published the first book. And then we say, oh, black theology began now, and it started in the academy. And even Cohn will say that it started before him. And they invited him into the conversation already. Um, and so, you know, Cohn writes the first book, Black Theology and Black Power, um, March of 1969. Second book he publishes is 1970, called A Black Theology Liberation, was the title. 1971, J. Deodis Roberts writes the third book on black theology called Black Theology and Liberation and Reconciliation. He was a little more reconciliatory. He talked more about the black family and the black church and working with our, quote, white brothers and whites, well, they didn't say sisters because they were all sexist in their language. Um, that was part of the time. You know, I don't want to, you can look at some of the archives on what was happening in the Oval Office when John F. Kennedy was president. So it was not unusual, uh, unfortunately, unusual. Um, okay, what happens, uh, the why? So basically the theological content of black liberation theology is that it is rooted radically from its perspective on Jesus Christ. It is radically, from its perspective, incarnational. That the hope and the joy and maybe some uniqueness of Christianity on the world stage is that it offers hope of not a distant God, not a God who's a clockmaker who makes us, winds up, and let us disappear, not a God that smothers us, but a God who loves us so much that God sent God's self into human flesh, into human culture, and that God rose, and after God rose, God sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. I should never leave you alone, right? I'm paraphrasing. I know you biblical literate people know better than I am, so I'm just a theologian. We don't use the Bible. Actually, I use the Bible a lot. I'm one of those theologians that use the Bible, actually. So what it's saying, the con theological content is biblically based particularly on two major passages from the Bible. If you, if you don't get anything else, you get this. Jesus Christ is the essence of theology, black liberation theology, based on Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and following. The black liberation theology claims that that is the only place in the New Testament witness where God announces why God came to earth. You can find another section, let me know about it. Okay, now I'm talking about the six, six books of the Protestant Bible, Roman Catholic, they got more than six, six books. Uh, but the six, six books of the Protestant Bible, that's like the state of the cosmos. A union message, right? This is not some little, you know, hey, let's go out to McDonald's or Star, well, for Seattle, Starbucks, sorry. Uh, you know, this is like, why has Kairos entered Kronos? Why has transcendent time of grace into the limited time of human culture. This is huge. It's not no little, mm -mm, this is huge. And I want to know, as a Christian, why did God come? 
and what and where in this major announcement to what? Because first, John the Baptist baptized. That's, you know, he's baptized, right? Is that in your Bible still? Okay. All right. John, and then the dove appeared and all that, and the, this is my son and all that, right? Remember that part in there? Is that still in the Bible? Okay, I, you know, I'm just asking because y'all be doing all kinds of revisions, you know, <laughs> the, re, the revised standard, whatever. I love the revised standard, actually. Um, and also there's a woman's Bible. It's pretty good, too. But, um, but if you like the King James, it's in there as well. Um, then the spirit descends, the anointing, clear anointing takes place, and then what happens? He's tested, right? Is that, am I getting that thing straight? Yeah, three temptations. Whenever you're high on the mountaintop and move in the right direction, Satan always, that's when the temptation comes. And he says no to all three temptations. Then, after that, there's something in between, but he goes to the temple. Baptized in the Holy Spirit, goes tempted by Satan, makes it through that, and now he says, I've gone through the trial of temptation, now I'm going to proclaim why I'm here. And that's where Luke 4, 16 and following. Now you know I'm going to tell you why. And he says, why? I'm here. Yes, to bind up the brokenhearted, to help the poor, the starving, the weak. Read 4, 16. When you, I know you studied physics and finance and all that. But take a little time. Look at it. chapter 4, verses 16 and following. That's why he came, or God came. God came in the form of a he. Um, and Jesus. This is, of course, black theology interpretation. I'm open to a Q&A, which I'm going to wrap this thing for a little bit. But um, this is huge. The other biblical basis, at least black theology thinks so, for, that warrants its claim for black liberation theology, being Christian theology, is how to get to heaven, okay? My own view is that everybody who's a Christian wants to go to heaven. Now, it depends on what we mean by heaven. Some people literally mean, particularly in the black church tradition, that when we die, we're going to cross Jordan, and we literally are going to go with Big Mama and Papa and my dear and Daddy and Mama and, you know, Ray Ray and Bo and <laughs> Shanae and Hey. <laughs> We literally, we literally are going to go to a land, physically. And, and so some people believe it means that, you know, for the more liberal, they believe that heaven is the, the human beings can realize heaven on earth. The point is that for Christians, the hope is that he, heaven means a new reality. That's basically what it means. So however you define this new reality, the purpose of being a Christian is not to forever stay here. Although, so what that means, all y'all talking about heaven, y'all don't want to go there. You got to die, okay? You can talk all you want, but you don't want to go to heaven because that means you got to die. Um, but really, that's really what it is, to be with that new creation, that new reality. In certain languages, it means to be with the risen Christ who sits on the right hand of the Father. In certain, like, that may, or others mean that to be reunited with that ultimate spirit that is purity and good and grace and all that is forgiving and reconciling and healing and liberating. It may be up there, it might be down here, whatever your perspective is. The content of Christianity, as far as I know, is for a new life, right? However you want to talk about it. Okay, where in the 66 books of the Bible does Jesus give the only criteria to get to heaven? Matthew 25, verse 31 and following. Check it out, okay? Now, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I might be stepping out of my, I'm just a yah blah blah theologian. Now, I'm, I'm big, I'm joking, but I'm very serious in my heart. 
I want to know what if, if, if I'm talking to somebody who's in a, who's who does who asks what is Christianity and what's I said well you know we've got you know there's Taoism there's Islam there's Buddhism there's Hinduism there's Sikhism there's uh, Judaism there's Confucianism there's all kind you know all kinds of you know if you were but I can tell you let me tell you a story about a man I know okay you choose what you want but let me tell you about a story about a man I know this is why he came and died and this is the criteria for you to have new life. And what is the criteria? Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, says the criterion to get into, criteria, sorry, my Latin is slipping there. Criterion is singular, criteria is plural. Cri the criteria for getting into heaven that Jesus Christ, my personal Lord and Savior, gives to us is, by the way, he doesn't give it to Christians, he gives it to the whole world. You're not sure what your denomination is, he says to the whole world. What's the criteria? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked, right? Did you visit me in prison? Did you help me when I was sick, when I was lost? Did you give me sight? That's, I'm open. I, sometimes you say I'm a little provocative. I know there might be some other passages. John 3.16 and the great two commandments. All about, but as far as clear, for me, that's the clearest criteria how to get to heaven. Show me where there's some other criteria where God came to earth and told us how to have a new life. I'm interested because I want to know the truth. And I do believe there's a capital T. I'm not talking philosophy capital T here. Um, so to me, the content of, which is, what is this? What question are we on? The what? Is it what? What, yeah. The first part of it is the content. It's biblically based on Luke, the public announcement to the cosmos, why God came, Luke 4, verse 16 and following. And the, the other major bookend is how to get to heaven. If you don't want to get to heaven, just do something else, okay? <laughs> the method. The method of the, what is it? The what question? What am I doing here? Is it what? What? Come on, you can say it. Come on. What? Okay, come on. What? Is uh, content. Now, the, me the method basically is that black liberation theology believes that, that Jesus Christ is already involved in the world. Healing, transforming, liberating. So the first step in theology is to take a practical commitment with the poor and the oppressed, to heal them, to liberate them, to witness with them. The second step of the method is to then step back and reflect theologically on the witness. It's not just to write the theology, it's to witness. Then the second step is to um, reflect, take time to reflect more systematically. Uh, part of that systematic reflection is to use other disciplines. Because if you've ever been, I was a community organizer, now that the, Obama said it, when I, before nobody knew what it was, they said, well, you did what after Harvard? You worked with Goldman Sachs? No, 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 I worked with community organizer. Oh, okay, is that down there with Lehman Brothers? No, 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 <laughs> But when Obama said everybody, so when you're a community organizer, in a sense, that's what you're doing. You're, you're living with the people, witness, you don't critique, you live with them. You struggle, you sacrifice them with all that, right? Um, and then you, you, know, you come back and reflect on the theology um, but when you're, when you're living with the people, this is the point. First part, live the folk, be committed to them because we believe that Jesus is already there. Second step is now to reflect back more systematically on what I've been living and witness to. And in the process of, of reflecting, we need to bring in other disciplines to help us figure out the witnessing and the theological reflection. Why? Because I was, this is my point. If, you live with the, if you've ever been poor, or as my grandma would say, you've ever been poor, okay? <laughs> And hungry, okay? Not hungry, but hungry, okay? 
We're doing a little Ebonics up in here, provost and president, but I still got my PhDs and I did go to Harvard, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm multicultural and multilingual. Um, the poor people are involved, they got to pay their bills. So where's that sister that was doing finance in the, uh, what is that cohort called y'all got the church? No, no, the one where Sean leads the accent? Act six, yeah. What's some cadre something over your head? Cadre, yeah, yeah. She was talking about finance and, and you know, so finance is important, right? We talked about, the, and you talk about psychology as a discipline that's a, cog, a related discipline. You know, poor people got some, I don't romanticize poor people, okay? Because I know what, people are wounded, okay? We need pastoral counseling and psychiatry because of domestic violence, abuse, all kinds of stuff. The, the silent killers, a lot of, one of the silent killers in the black church is domestic violence in the pulpit, okay? So we, we need political economy to understand global relationships. How are we, as a pastor, how, how am, when I was a pastor of a church in the south side of Chicago, how am I going to explain to my congregation what happened with the meltdown in 2017, which wiped out two-thirds of African-American wealth in America? You talk about income, you talk about black people being mad, you know? <laughs> okay? I need global political economy. How am I going to do that? How am I going to minister to them? So the point here is that we need, dis 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 we need other disciplines to help us move along. Okay, let me just, what was the third one? What? Where? Okay, you woke up over there. Just trying to keep you woke up. I got, I got some other things in here, but where, where is black theology today in the future? Um, when we look at the trends in black theology today, one trend emphasizes the importance of focusing on Africa. And I'm going to really do my short, I'm not going to go into this, but we can Q&A, we can talk about that. A second trend emphasizes, this is where, right? Where? The second trend emphasizes pastoral work in black theology. And there are quite a number of people there, uh, Lee Butler, other people like that. Um, a third trend in black theology emphasizes social liberation. A great book, what it's look at is uh, Oprah Hendricks' book, The Politics of Jesus, which was in the New York Times, actually. Um, that's the third trend on the where point. The fourth trend, um, and the final trend I have here, is that it stresses black religion and not black theology. There are those, uh, Gabriel Wilmore is ordained Presbyterian, but he also fought to see black theology as one subset of a larger black religiosity, which included black Muslims, black Jews, all kinds of things. So this trend will say, well, look, we, we understand, and I'm a Christian, not me, but this is what they're, but we, un we also understand that black theology is part of a larger interreligious black religiosity. So that's really the fourth trend. And then um, those four trends represent, in a very schematic way, where black theology is, is today. Um, let me close my, oh, I'm reading one I wrote, okay. Uh, let me close my remarks by pointing to where black theological liberation needs to go into the future. Black theology needs to de deepen its relationship to African-American churches. To me, this is the first future challenge. Secondly, in terms of where do we go in the future, um, second, one of the hallmarks of black theology has been using an interpretation of the gospel that does a complex social analysis of society where everyday black people find themselves. Um, that is to say, we need to uh, include a complex social analysis for black theology because we're dealing with a complex social situation um, for black people who are hurting. 
a third future direction. Black theology needs to, oh, I, oh, I forgot. To, I, I do, I've been doing uh, min, male ministry on the South Side of Chicago since 1999, so part of this is impacted by who I am and ministry I do, okay? I do high-octane philosophy at the University of Chicago. So if you want to talk about it in Q&A, put my Harvard head up. <laughs> uh, and a third trend is that black theology future offering for your consideration is black theology needs to do more sophisticated studies of the positive roles that African-American men play as fathers and husbands in the household and in the church. And I'd be interested to talk about that and whether that's a positive or a reaction a, react, a reactionary proposal. Fourth, I'm sub submitting for your consideration this evening a future direction. Fourth, the urban areas of America are full of young black men between the ages of 15 and 25. Black theology with churches need to proclaim a practical gospel of liberation and healing with them. And I can talk about a little more. I really wanted to go into that. But a fifth, Black theology and the churches have to continue our legacy of connecting our domestic USA witness and ministries with Africa. And finally, those of us who are older religious leaders need to teach younger religious leaders that their lives only not their, that their lives only have meaning when they can identify their calling from God. And this is some concern I have with the Black Lives Matter movement, which I'm open to. You know, I'm going to say to black people what I said to everybody. So if y'all think I'm airing dirty laundry, hallelujah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to say what I think. Uh, I, actually, I support it because my daughter was one of the uh, co-founders of the Black Lives Matter ministry at our church. And I was like, what did you do? And she said, oh, so we want to tell people what, what she said. The content of our, she's, she's beautiful. She said, the content of our ministry is to tell people in the church what our generation thinks we should do as young leaders. So that's very cool, you know? Yeah, that's very cool. She's, uh, she's, uh, she's 15 now. She's a 15 and a half, Miss Thang. Um, let's see. So what are we saying? The final thing is that we think it's important for those of us who are older religious leaders to help nurture and groom a self-conscious vocation uh, for younger people, to say that because it seems to me that it is the vocation, the Christian vocation, and the new generation that's the future of America. That all, whether it's Black Lives Matters or whether it's whatever you do, that it's, it has to come from a sense of vocation. That's the anchor for what we call a Christian Black liberation theology. Okay, thank you.